Very good. Thank you for leading us in singing. It did uh, remind me, even as we were singing, we came to the last hymn there. Um, and even the one before, as we were talking about Christ's return, and quite possibly doing that in a way other than what might have been expected. I argued in the last uh, session that this is how you see the New Testament using this doctrine. Uh, what's interesting, I've said in other cases, I hadn't thought about it here today until we were just singing. Notice how our hymns use the second coming of Christ. Mid-toil and tribulation and the tumult of reward. That, that truth is there to sustain us. And then that great hymn, It Is Well. We know the story of the suffering that was born from that. First one is the suffering. The second two verses are the cross, the atonement that's made. And the last one is the return of Christ. Look at a number of those. This is how uh, the return of Christ has been used, even in the uh, tradition of our hymnody of encouraging and inspiring perseverance. Well, I want to look in this hour in Second Corinthians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I want to mention something about Revelation since I'm not preaching from it which is just the typical preacher uh, problem of wanting to preach on all kind of things and having to focus on one of them. Um, but in talking uh, actually with one of the brothers in the off time, he mentioned uh, the book of Revelation talking about and promising a blessing for those who read, hear the words of this prophecy. And so we should be preaching from this book. Part of the way it's been taken out of our hands is think of it only in terms of speculation. Um, with properly understanding it, we can do so much more with it if we think along the terms of what Dr. Thornberry uh, laid out earlier and some of the suggestions that have been made. So I want to make one recommendation to you in that line as you try to, if you want to think about preaching the book of Revelation and, and uh, applying it to here and now uh, in light of what it meant at the time. Dennis Johnson has what I think is an excellent commentary and I was trying to remember the title. It's something like The Triumph of the Lamb, something to that effect, which for some of you will say, that sounds like Ray Summers' book, and it, the title is very similar if you know that one. Um, he has a certain take uh, on the millennial question, and you may agree or disagree, but what I would commend to you, if, if nothing else, is it's either the last chapter or an appendix, and that's what grabbed me really when I looked at it, because that chapter or appendix, whatever it is, the title is, What Should This Book Do to Us? Yes, that's the question. And so he lays out some of how it's supposed to challenge us and encourage and inspire us. Well, I want to look here at this issue really of the resurrection and the return of Christ in 2 Corinthians 4 because I want to look at the question of how should this truth shape our lives and our ministry. And 2 Corinthians is as much a pastoral letter as 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus you have much of Paul's philosophy of pastoral ministry right here in 2 Corinthians. As he deals with a difficult church, he's t he tells them in the first chapter about the suffering that he endured in Asia and how difficult that was. He then has to deal with the difficulty there. and he, In spite of all his labors, these false teachers have come in whom he sarcastically refers to as super apostles. And the people in Corinth are caught up in glitz and glamour. And Paul is pedestrian by comparison. He's just low-key. He's just doing the work. 
It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, and they're really fascinated with that. I think that's an important setting because one day you might see some kind of setting like that in our culture, maybe today. But in that situation, and a good bit of hardship, Paul tells us what it is that sustains him. When he gets to chapter 11, he's going to give us that amazing list of sufferings that he's been through. He's already told us what it's like here as he deals with this difficult church. And so I want to read from 4-7 all the way to 5-10. I won't be able to deal with everything that's here because we only have till 5 o'clock. Right, Charles? <laughs> There's one of my homiletical points too. I always joke about preaching real long, so when you preach just short along, it didn't seem so bad. But I want to read this full text, and there's, there's a lot here. And in some ways, it, it gets pretty complicated. But I want to catch just one real theme that's here. So let me read beginning in 4-7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. But we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Or we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Let's pray together. Father, we are again thankful for your word. Thankful that you have spoken to us. We would ask that you might help us to understand more clearly and apply more faithfully this passage as a result of this time. Speak to us, Father, that we might not glory in ourselves but in you. And that we might have an increased boldness in the preaching of the gospel. That we might have an increased confidence in you. Even a decreased confidence in ourselves. Speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is, as I said, there's a long text here. But I hope you saw where the return of Christ is mentioned and the resurrection. Now, if we think of the resurrection, our resurrection, as separated from the return of Christ, we're not thinking real well biblically. The consummation of all things that comes with the return of Christ. Again, whatever our understanding of how it all plays out, it's, it's tied in together. The consummation of all this. God putting all these things together. And what I want us to notice is here Paul is giving us How do you endure in difficult ministry? Now, I know that none of you have difficult ministry, but some of your friends do, and you will need to encourage them. Of course, ministry is always difficult, because life is difficult. Just recently, speaking with a man and trying to help and the shepherd, and one of the points I've had to make is, Yes, I know it's difficult. It's not going to change, really. It's going to be difficult. In this world, you have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. When we get into our minds that we think there's some place out there where all of a sudden everything's going to go well. All of a sudden, everyone's going to notice my preaching prowess and I will be recognized as I deserve which is probably already the case, only more so than, than is deserved. Someday more people are going to come and, and my ministry will be more appreciated. Someday I'll, I'll see fruit of my labors more than I do now. Someday no difficult people will be members of my church, which means we'll probably have to leave, right? All these things. And the fact of the matter is the Lord blesses ministries as he sees fit. And the Lord will use some of us to reach more people than others. Some of us will be known by few, some by a few more, some by many, some by a whole lot. But that is the Lord's doing. And it need be no concern of ours. How do we endure in these challenging situations, these difficult situations? The ones that want to make you want to give up. And I don't know if your people know you feel that way. I feel that way. More than one time in pastoral ministry. Recently, I thought to myself, I'm done. Let me just turn it in. I, I, I can't put, put up with this. Not that people are worse than me. It's just they're all asking me. And I, I don't have enough resources to give, to do. I'm overwhelmed. This is beyond me. Dear pastor friend said to me recently, do you know why you always feel so inadequate for ministry? 
Because you are. But Christ is adequate. And this is what's going on here in this text. You know, already back in chapter 2, he had asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? That is, who is sufficient for the ministry of the new covenant? The proclamation of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. And he goes on to answer in a qualified way, we are because of Christ. Because he is at work in us. And so in that context, then, when he comes to verse 7, we have this treasure. I think you're referring to the ministry of the gospel itself and all the things attended to it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. The gospel is an amazing treasure. In fact, the same pastor who mentioned the other thing to me uh, was a professor of mine. I remember him very vividly talking about the role of the pastor. It wasn't to do all sorts of other things, but it was week by week to open up the treasure chest of God's Word and to bring out the jewel of the gospel and to turn it ever so slightly one more turn and show us one more facet of the beauty of the gospel. That's a good description, and it fits what's going on here. It is an incredible treasure, but God has seen fit to house it in fragile, broken things like us. We know this. You know this text. But we are pushed, we are encouraged and pressed to think more along the lines of, if you want people to see the gospel, you better fix up that jar. You better give it some window dressing. You better add a few gimmicks because we end up not so convinced that the gospel is indeed the power of God and salvation. Not my performance or somebody else's eloquence, but the gospel itself. And God has intentionally chosen messed up people like us to be the vessels for this. And this is so that the surpassing power might be of God and not of us. Well, he then describes here in verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, we're perplexed, we're persecuted, we're struck down. He's describing ministry. You know this. Some of you know this far better than I do. And just the everyday, day in and day out thing. This is true of the Christian life in general as we encounter a fallen world. But in all those things, there is a but. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. What is this source of confidence even when it gets down to verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Or over in 5, 6, so we're always of good courage. Where does this staying power come from? Where does this confidence, this courage come from? It's not from pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not by thinking better of yourself. I did have a professor say to me, I had asked a question about, I was in conversation with the church, this is back in the day, and... Uh, Somehow it came up about discussing salary. They had not raised the question yet. I didn't want to raise the question. It was a whole, you know that thing about how you do that. Uh, Brother Northcott can tell exactly how it's supposed to be done. Um, but the point is that in that he said, Oh, Ray, you don't think highly enough of yourself. And he gave me an assignment. I didn't do it. It wasn't for a class. But his assignment was, he said, You need to go home. I did that part. And 
you need to look yourself in the mirror five, six, I forget how many times a day, and you need to say to yourself, I am worth it. I just stared at him like, what? Where is this coming from? That is not the basis of our confidence. You can hype yourself up for a while, but it won't last. You can say to yourself, just do it. My uh, senior year in baseball, we had a good season, had a good coach. But I remember one time him pulling me aside. There's men in scoring position. I'm up to bat. I had a decent batting average. He wants to encourage me to go ahead and pull this thing off. And so he pulls me aside and he says to me, Ray, just know that you're going to hit it. He should have known I had a bit of a philosophical bent to me because I went to the plate then thinking, how can I know that I'm going to hit it. I don't know the future. I, I probably struck out. I was sitting there thinking, what, what did he mean? But this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps is not the biblical model. It's not that. Nor is it by demeaning all the others around us. I'm a little worried. I don't feel like my ministry is as successful. And I'm looking at the other people around me, and they appear successful So, though I'm too good of a church person to ever say this out loud, I'm going to find some way to show why that's not as good as it looks like, and then I will feel like I'm on par. The Bible word for that is wickedness. But you know the temptation. You know how these things come to us. We're looking for staying power somewhere. And it is already mentioned here in this first piece of the text. When he mentions there at the end of verse 10, or the verse 10 in general, we carry about ourselves the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He's referring here to the resurrection. The resurrection power. And it's not some airy-fairy thing, but it is the fact that because we know that Christ's ministry was a suffering ministry, and therefore we walk in his steps, but the power that raised God, Christ from the dead is at work in us. That's Pauline language as well. So that even as we see death about us, we believe that God is at work bringing life. The hope of the resurrection sustains us. This is what he goes on to say. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. We endure, we suffer, we take on hardship, so that the life-giving power of Christ might be revealed. In fact, I would encourage you to check out Scott Hafeman's excellent commentary on 2 Corinthians 4 as you uh, go through this passage whenever you do on your own uh, and his argument that actually suffering is an essential part of pastoral ministry. Uh, it's part of living out the life of Christ on behalf of our people. That's what he says. Death is at work in us so that life may be at work in you. He's being a bit ironic or sarcastic there again with the Corinthians, but he's making a key point. And then he makes this, he quotes in Psalm 116 uh, a statement about suffering, but uh, speaking in the midst of the suffering, and he says, we do the same thing. Then verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. He's saying, again, the hope of the future resurrection sustains me. 
And it's all in the midst of suffering, even the psalm he's quoting. And the question is, Paul, how do, you, how do you keep going when people mock you, abuse you, scorn you, when people leave? When you invest in these people for so much time, you give so much energy to them, and at the first sight of a false teacher, they go running off to them. This is what he says to the Corinthians later. You put up with fools nicely. Shouldn't there at least be some loyalty to me? I consider you as children, he says. And yet you go running off to others? You know this feeling. He says we endure because we know that Christ, who has been raised, He and the Father will themselves raise us up and bring us into His presence. Why is that sustaining? Because there is more going on than what we see. This is where he gets later in the text, at the end of chapter 4. We do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. And he'll say later that we walk by faith because God is at work and we are laboring in light of eternity, not just what we see here. That has a real freeing power to it if we think about it. And it's afternoon and we're having to think. And that's a challenge. It's not just right on the surface here, but we have to think about it a little bit. Because we are tempted to do our ministry in light of only what's here. How many people showed up this week? What's the budget? What are we doing with our plants? And all these things, which are valid things. But they're not the ultimate things. The ultimate things we'll not see until eternity. But you cannot have that kind of ministry if you're only looking for right now. And the the books that show up in our bookstores encourage us to look only for right now. And encourage us to say, if a large number of people aren't coming and adding to your ministry over the years, it's a failure. That is patently wrong. By that standard, the ministry of Christ was a failure. Not to mention the Old Testament prophets. What about Jeremiah? Preaches all his life, gets thrown in the well. He writes down a prophecy, they burn it up, tear it up. In the end... He preaches to them to obey God lest they be destroyed, and they're destroyed, and then he gets abducted and taken away to another country. What a pitiful ministry by earthly standards. What a difficult ministry by personal standards. But because he endured faithfully, we today read the words that God gave through Jeremiah. How many people have read How many people have been challenged and blessed? But we must take the long view, living in light of eternity, in order to live this way. And this is what Paul is telling us. So he says in verse 16, well, go back to verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. He is saying more and more people. He doesn't know whether or not he'll see it, but his goal is that as he endures... Because he knows there's a resurrection. This message will continue to go and it will reach more and more people whether or not he sees it or ever knows it and it will result in thanksgiving and in glory to God. Not glory to Paul. Whether or not anybody's able to trace it back to Paul's ministry is not his concern. He's not worried about making sure he gets the credit for it. But glory will go to God. So in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Uh, We're tempted to lose heart. 
It's the hope of the resurrection, the return of Christ that keeps us from doing so. Because he goes on to say, our outer nature is wasting away. From time to time, we might wish our outer nature would waste away a little more. But you know what he means. We're decay. But the inner man is being strengthened. And this slight momentary affliction. Nobody here is probably tempted to do this. But we might be tempted somewhere along the way to say, well, that's all good for him to say because his affliction was just slight and momentary. I mean, I'm going through some pretty bad stuff. Right. Let's just look over to chapter 11 for just a second. This, by the way, is Paul's resume. I don't have time to kind of tease that out. But he wants, when he wants to tell them that God is at work in him, then in chapter 11, we'll start at verse 23. He said that he's speaking like a fool here because that's who they listen to as fools. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. But what's the evidence? With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. We know some of those, but I don't think we have quite that resume. And I can't resist simply saying, this is Paul's resume. You can imagine the pastoral search committee around here saying, I don't know, I like this candidate. He's been in jail more often. I think he suffered more for the cause of Christ. There's much to tease out there. But my point here is, Paul can say, that's slight and momentary. Not because he's pastorally speaking. Not because he's just glossing it over. But because he has his eyes fixed on eternity. It's slight, even if it lasts for 50 years, because he has in view eternity. It's momentary for that same reason. It's small compared to the glories of heaven. But if we only look now, we will be shaped by now. We are shaped by what we desire, what we aim for. We must labor to push our eyes up to take the eternal view or we will compromise. We must set our affections on the eternal things. This is what he goes on to say. That we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. We live in light of eternity. One scholar has said this. It's partly because Paul believes in a future resurrection of the dead that he is presently willing to carry about in his body the dying of Jesus. It is because he trusts in a future exaltation that he submits now to the condition of a slave. This is language in 4 or 5. It is because he looks forward to a future heavenly life that he's willing to die daily. It is because he anticipates reigning with Christ in the future that he can speak so boldly in the present. Without faith and a future resurrection, Paul's present suffering 
would not only would be not only intolerable but also meaningless. He would, on his own admission, be a man most to be pitied. We should be engaged in lives and ministries that only make sense if there's more than what we can see. Pastors, if your congregation can make sense of your ministry just by what's in the here and now, we're failing. If the watching world can understand what we do and why we do it, Simply by the here and now, we're failing them. We ought to be living and ministering, conducting ourselves in such a way that people have to scratch their heads and say, it doesn't all add up. And we say that's exactly right. Because there's another piece to the equation. There is the resurrection. There is eternity. It is hard for me to live this way. I realize more and more I'm shaped by the give it to me now-ness of our culture. I talked about that all the time in my classes. And then all of a sudden, in a fresher way, I saw how real it was in my own life. We must work to lift our eyes to the hill, to see something different. This is what will keep us from losing heart. Because, even as he talks about here, these sufferings, there are going to come those dark days when people decide they want to leave. They want to leave where you are. They want to go to something else. And maybe it's a fine place where they're going. Maybe it's not. But it doesn't matter. Your ministry seems to be losing and wasting away. How do you endure? Only with an eternal perspective. Only by trusting God is at work. If God was at work in the darkest day of human history, when God the Son incarnate is seized by mere human beings and nailed to a cross to die in agony, certainly that's the darkest day in human history. The worst thing that was ever done. And yet the scripture tells us very clearly that it was no accident, but God was at work right there accomplishing salvation. Then he is also at work in whatever darkest day you have. Just recently I was listening to uh, the audio book of uh, an account that John Eisenhower wrote of his father, General Ike, it was called. It's interesting on all kinds of levels. But one piece jumped out to me. In 1942, Eisenhower and others had a plan to invade Europe and go ahead and get after it. For one reason or another, it was put down. It wasn't going to be. They had to wait, so they invaded Africa instead. Of course, we know they invade Europe two years later. But he quoted from a letter from General Eisenhower where he said this was the darkest day of his life. In fact, he put all this labor into this effort, and it was turned down. And so it looked like... um, professional in for him, trouble and everything else. He called it the darkest day in his life. But in retrospect, his son, looking back, said, and I won't go through all the details, when you see this, because this happened, this put him in this position, put him in this position, so that where he would not have been the commanding general at that time, two years later he was, which leads to great prominence and everything else. Listening to it, it struck me. Here is a Bible truth. I don't know anything about the faith or lack thereof of either any of the Eisenhowers. But he's touching on a Bible truth. That which he thought was the darkest day was actually his entry into great opportunity. So it is with us. We simply need to trust and be faithful. 
The power of the resurrection is at work. We need not worry about the breadth of our ministry or the recognition of our ministry. We simply be faithful because we will one day stand before Christ and we will give an account. I was struck in looking at these texts that how often the resurrection shows up in some of my favorite ministry texts. Things you preach on in ordination sermons. 2 Timothy 4, you know, preach the word in season, out of season. But what's he start that with? That's verse 2. Verse 1 is, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and in light of his appearing. It's the resurrection, the return of Christ that it holds in there. Hebrews 13, 17, when we're commanded to be engaged in the oversight of souls as those who must give an account to God for our deeds. We must do this work in light of that truth. It will free us from human expectations. It will free us from worrying about what people see and what people think. And it will give us the kind of boldness that Paul had. It's because of these truths that he can write what he did in the first six verses of this chapter, which I didn't read. Because there he says, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He keeps hitting this theme. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. What's he saying? He says, I know there are people who are gaining a larger hearing. They have fancier ministries. And people are going to them because they are tampering. The word is used in other contexts for diluting uh, things. They are diluting the word of God. So they gain a large hearing. Because you tell people that the Bible's message is that you have your best life now without any view of eternity. Sure, you can draw a large hearing from that, but you just can't please God. It is this eternal perspective that can free us from the love for the praise of man. I don't think I've met anybody who does not appreciate the praise of man. And there's an appropriate level of that. But it's a challenging thing not to be ruled by the praise of man, but instead to live for the praise which God alone can give. You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? How can you know God since you desire the praise of man? Stinging words. It is this eternal perspective that frees us from the love of the praise of man and from the fear of man and prepares us for the fear of God. That's what he goes on to say in 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. And that's what allows him here to say, yes, people say they want this. People say they want that. But it doesn't matter. I preach Christ and him crucified. But preacher, that won't preach here. Watch it. That's not what my people want to hear. They weren't asked. We serve on behalf of the church, but we serve Christ and he is king. And we obey his command. So in 1 Corinthians, writing these same people, Paul says, the Jews ask for a sign, or a miracle. Yeah, a sign, a miracle. And the Greeks ask for wisdom. But we don't give either one of them what they ask for. We just preach Christ. And some will say, but Paul, that's a stumbling block. He says, I know. You're exactly right. Paul, they're not going to get it. I know. Paul, people are going to hate it. I know. We preach Christ crucified. 
To the Greeks, foolishness. To the Jews, a stumbling block. But to those who are called is the power of God. It is only this eternal perspective that frees us up to that kind of bold ministry that fears God and therefore is blessed by God. It may not be blessing that we see here and now, but it doesn't matter. It is a blessing that we will see in eternity because we live for eternal perspective. We live with that goal in mind. Robert Murray McShane was a prominent Scottish pastor. and I like how he said it. Brothers, they will not thank us in eternity for speaking smooth things, for crying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. No, they may praise us now, but they will curse our flattery in eternity. We need a God-born boldness. But you see, that's different from a human arrogance-bred boldness. That we have no need of. But a confidence in God. It will lead us to what J.B. Gambrell, professor years past at Southwestern, said. He said, we may invigorate our faith and renew our courage by reflecting that divine power has always attended the preaching of doctrine when done in the true spirit of preaching. God honors preaching that honors Him. There is entirely too much milksop preaching nowadays, trying to cajole sinners to enter upon a truce with their Maker. Quit sinning and join the church. The situation does not call for a truce, but a surrender. Let us bring out the heavy artillery of heaven and thunder away at this stuck-up age, as Whitfield, Edward, Spurgeon, and Paul did, and there will be many slain of the Lord raised up to walk in newness of life. It's that eternal perspective that will free us to do these things, that will invigorate us, that will give us strength, that will allow us to do what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, there he's talking about the resurrection. So we've had the resurrection and the return of Christ here in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, also back there in that great chapter 15. And as he goes through... Some confusing things there. His conclusion about that is verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Don't we struggle with wondering if what we're doing is in vain? Oh, we may not say it. We know better than it, but we struggle. It is this truth of the resurrection that shows us this is not in vain. God will redeem this. God is at work. Trust Him. Keep your head down and be faithful. This truth jumped out to me in a particular way. Several years ago, when um, at this time we have six kids, and at this time I think we just we had four, and the youngest one was a just a little baby, so the older three and I were out on one of our adventures. We like to go walking and, and wander around and things. We'd gone out in the field across from our house, wide open area. They're all boys, the ones that were with me. We have five boys and one girl. So we're all out there. And so as we're walking, we're, we're slaying giants and dragons and just whatever else. Just playing it up big. And that, my fun part is to kind of just weave the story as we go. It doesn't always work. It's not always logical, but it, you know, it fits and just goes along. And we just waylaid blades of grass everywhere. And so along the way, I had the idea we're going to rescue a princess, and so we're getting farther away from home. And we went down this little uh, area near a bridge. We rescued the princess, and, and everything was good. And then it dawned on me. We're a good ways from home. It was right around Christmas, and we're due for dinner 
with some other people in just a few minutes. I've got to get us home. My kids who are with me at this time are something like um, five, four, and three. You know, so they're quite young. We're not moving real fast. So how do I do this without losing the story? How do I kind of keep this going and get us back? So I began to move the story a little bit. And this doesn't work entirely, but it worked at the time. I said, men, we all had our swords, sticks. We've rescued the princess, and you've done a good job. Now, there were train tracks there. We can put the princess on the train and get her away to safety because you know there's always more bad guys coming. If you read any stories, you know that. I said, well, we've got two options. We can get on the train with her, and we will escape to safety. But in that way, we leave the door open for the bad guys to still get her. But we'll be safe. But our second option is this. We can stand our ground here and fight. And the princess is guaranteed to make it to safety. But men, we may not make it. They're all in the moment. We're having a big time. I said, so which one is it? They raised yellow sticks and said, we fight, Daddy. Yes. So we began to fight our way through the grass again. And we're going, we make it back up the hill, but now we're late. And I'm just telling them, okay, it's double time. I'm just pushing them as hard as we can. I'm carrying the, the youngest one. My oldest is dragging way behind. I'm trying to pull him up. And the, the middle one at this time of these three is here with me. And we're just trudging. There's snow on the ground. I'm worn out. They're worn out. But we just got to keep pressing forward. We got to get there. But we're still in the spirit of this moment. My second son, about four at this time, says, looks, just looks right up at me and says, Daddy, I don't think I'm going to make it. <laughs> this took me off guard. I thought, oh, he's really in the story. So I composed myself and said, why is that? He said, well, I just don't know if I can. He said, Daddy, you know what the worst part about it is? I may not make it home to see Mama and Baby again because they were at the house. Oh, boy, he's really carrying us on. I said, yeah. Then he said, Daddy, if I don't make it, you tell him it's okay because I'll see him again in heaven one day. And it hit me right there that even though he was just playing a little game we were talking about and he didn't understand the depths of the truths he was speaking, what he was saying is, The truth of the resurrection allows you to persevere here and now. It allows you to remain faithful unto death, even if you never win the prize on this side. And even as we walked, I prayed, Oh God, I know he doesn't realize the depths of what he just said. But would you please take that truth and work it deeper and deeper in his heart so that as he gets older, he might really live that truth out. And let me be a man before him and others who really lives that truth, really believing that I can be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord in spite of whatever circumstances, because I know my labor is not in vain, because the power that raised Christ from the dead will also raise this mortal body, and I will be with him in eternity and glory. That is what the truth of the second coming of Christ is supposed to do to us. 
as we live in light of the fact that soon and very soon we'll be going to see the king. There'll be no more hurting there because we're going to see the king. And there'll be no more dying there. We are going to see the king. Let us live and preach and minister like we believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would love us so much to give us that great privilege of being called children of God. Thank you that you, by the sovereign work of your own hand, hold fast to us because we are so feeble and frail. Help us to endure faithfully. Overwhelm us once more with the great truth of the glory that awaits us in spite of ourselves and due only to your own grace. May we be amazed afresh at this great truth that we might endure faithfully and joyfully and thereby be faithful ministers of the gospel and followers of Christ in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.